0: Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have uh, been in a series called Church, Why Bother? And I'm so thrilled many of you bothered today. Um, So I'm paid to bother, but uh, you're just here, so we're glad you are. And uh, we've been taking a look at what is the church? What's it for? Why is it here? And uh, today is going to be um, a little interesting because one of the couple of themes that we see in scripture run contrary to our culture out here. And this is one of those themes that runs a bit countercultural to us. So um, if you stay with me, I think there will be a nice payoff at the end. Okay? But you got to stick with me. Now, as we've been looking at the church, uh, I've been l- talking about this quote from Philip Yancey each week, just beginning with this quote, because it really helps us, I think, orient ourselves to this question as to what is the church and what's it here for? Or what are we doing? Once we have a vision of the church as participants, we can help it become the kind of place God intended. So, again, I like it because it says, preachers do everything in church, right? No, that is not what this says. It says we as participants, once we get a vision of what God wants the church to look like, can participate, play a role in that happening. And many times we get it backwards, or that's not even backwards, it's not even in there, the idea that the pastor does it all. Um, that's far from a biblical idea, the pastor doing it all. Uh, This is far closer aligned to what the Bible talks about, where God gives the church pastor-teachers to equip people for good works. And so Phil is tapping into that idea where he says, if we can get a vision for God's intent for our church, our local church, the global church, but we'll start locally because globally is a little abstract. If we can get a vision for what our local church in Ray, Colorado should look like, then we can participate in making it look that way. Today, we're going to look at a couple of passages, three passages actually, that talk about this notion in scripture that... Uh, You don't often find talked about when you talk about the idea of church. Does that make sense or is that in the murky woods? Because I said the word talk three times in that. It's not something you hear talked about much when we talk about church. And the concept that we're going to talk about a little bit is church's impact, and not just impact, but relationship with culture. Because there's many different ideas as to how the church should interact with culture. I grew up in a a home, uh, and my home was shaped by our church, and our church had a view that you should not interact with modern culture. Now, we always are interacting with culture. It's just which culture, what decade of culture are we interacting with? My home, we interacted with culture several decades behind the current decade. Because okay, we still had to have clothes. The clothes were just older decade clothes. We still had to have music. It was just older decade music. We still had to have cars. Well, that's okay. You could have brand new cars at my house. But we couldn't listen to new music. We couldn't go to movies growing up unless they were rated G and Disney made them and they were cartoons. I remember I couldn't listen to secular music until I was well into high school. And the reason I could start listening to secular music in high school is because my sister went and kicked that door in. When she started listening to Prince (laughs) and Michael Jackson. And I'm like, hey, she gets to listen to that stuff. I should get to listen to it. I was a compliant firstborn, so um, I was always doing what I was told. My family, though, said no to certain cultural things. And on one hand, it was a good choice because there are certain cultural things we need to say no to. But on the other hand, it wasn't quite as necessary to be as stringent as we were. And Christians always wrestle with what should our involvement with culture look like? What should it be like? Should we own TVs or not? Should we go to movies or not? Should we go bowling or not? Should we drink or not? All these different issues. And the scriptures, uh, they wrestle with this question, but in ways that perhaps we don't always catch on. Now, there's a theme throughout scripture that us folks in the country are going to find a tad irritating. So let me first tell you what that is, and then let me help you remove maybe the burr from your saddle, okay? Okay. Since we're country, we know what that means. I don't know what that means. It's just a saying I hear you all use. Now, the the idea is city. The idea is city. In fact, there was a theologian, Richard Niebuhr, that said, if you don't like New York City, you will not like the New Jerusalem. How many of you don't like New York City? How many of you have been there and know what you don't like? Number one, okay. Now, how many have been to Denver, right? I mean, there's a lot of folks who don't like the city who live out here. And before you stop listening to me, one of the things I want you to understand is that cities have always exerted a lot of influence on human society. Cities have always influenced a lot on human society. You can't escape cities. Later today, many of us will wear orange and blue, and we will root for a team from a particular city. Thank you. Now, why isn't that team here? Why isn't that team located here? Because we don't want a stadium that holds 75,000 people here. Maybe we would, We'd like the income from 75,000 people. We would like the tax base that 75,000 people would bring on Sundays as long as they leave later Sunday. But there's reasons why we live here. Now, some of those reasons aren't always good reasons. We'll get into that in a moment. But cities always exert a certain amount and a, a disproportional, a big influence on society compared to the rural areas. And this is just common sense. Businesses, large businesses do not locate in rural areas. Why? Part of his workforce. Part of it is infrastructure. Part of it is the opportunity that cities bring that the rural area doesn't bring. And most of us go, yay. We don't want them here. We don't want all of the infrastructure here. We don't want all the people here. We don't want all the houses here. We don't want all the, the crime here. We don't want all those problems here. Okay? Now, the scriptures talk about cities, and it talks about two cities. Two cities that are regularly talked about. And in fact, history, you could say from the biblical perspective, is this tale of two cities. A tale of two different cities. In Isaiah chapter 26, we're going to see these two cities introduced for us. Now, the book of Isaiah has been called the book of the city because Isaiah is constantly talking about cities. Now, let me put you at ease a little bit because when Isaiah talks about cities, do you know what type of city and how big the city he is talking about is? An ancient city, Jerusalem, Babylon, was between 1,000 and 3,000 people. Y'all live in a city, okay? An ancient biblical city, 1,000 to 3,000 people. A city in the ancient world was a group of people that were densely concentrated behind a big wall. The city was usually 5 to 10 acres in size, And it had a population density of about 240 people per acre. Now, I can't think in acres. I know many of you can. I think in terms of blocks. Okay? Because I grew up in the suburbs, which isn't quite the city. Okay? It's like this weird place that we have cars for. But I think in blocks. To compare... And to contrast the the density of an ancient city, 240 people per acre, Manhattan today has 105 people per acre in its population density. So ancient cities were far more densely populated. People living on top of each other. They were in very small homes next to very narrow streets because nobody had a car yet. They all had motorcycles. And he wrote around on those. So 1,000 to 3,000 people. When you think of Isaiah talking about a city, don't think about Denver. Don't think about New York or L.A. or Chicago. Think about Ray. That's more the picture that Isaiah would have had in his mind when he said city. Okay? We think village perhaps, for our town. Maybe we think town. We are pretty small, but Isaiah would have thought this rather than Denver. Now, Isaiah chapter 26, 1 through 6, it says this, In that day, the day of the Lord, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He, the Lord, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, is, Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. Now, did you hear the two different cities in there? There's the strong city of verse 1 and the lofty city of verse 5. Now, the lofty city is the city of man, the city that men and women create. It's the city that exists to advance human society. And cities can be good and bad. And the Bible is very nuanced in how it presents cities. It presents it both as good. In fact, the first city that was built was built by Cain. And so instantly everybody's going, oh, Cain, he killed Abel. He's a bad guy. And he started a city. Therefore, we should live in the country. Trouble is, when he built that city, it was a city that brought about security and stability. It was a city that brought about arts and architecture. It was a city that brought about agriculture. It was a city that started to promote human flourishing. Psalm 107, it starts out by saying, oh, these poor people, they don't have a city. They need a city. And God, in his gracious goodness, gives them a city. Now, remember, when I say city, one to three thousand people is what they're thinking. The good folks of Cope Is their city strong? Do they have a strong city? You see, Ray needs to be a strong city. We want it to be a strong city. The city might be throwing you off. So I'll use the word we are more comfortable with. Town. Ray needs to be a strong town. If the businesses of Ray don't prosper... Ray doesn't prosper. If the schools of Ray don't prosper, Ray doesn't prosper. Ray needs to be a strong town. We all want it to be. We want it to be a strong place. But we don't want it to be a lofty city. The lofty city is a place that exists uh, to promote self. The lofty city is a place where people are just looking for theirs. A lofty city is a place where people their their righteousness is based off of their self righteousness, how good they are, how good their name is, how good their reputation is, who their granddaddy was. That's the lofty city. The strong city. In contrast, the strong city is built by God. The strong city is, modern day language we would say, it is the kingdom of God bursting into this world. The strong city is built on God's salvation. The strong city is a place that people want to be in, who humble themselves, who understand that no amount of being good is going to be good enough. The strong city is the place of God's righteousness, God's goodness, and there is no oppression or poverty. We'll get into that here in a bit. Now, one of the natural questions you're going to have is, where are these cities? Where are these cities that Isaiah is speaking of? Where's the strong city? Where's the lofty city? Well, we can already guess the strong city is probably Jerusalem. It's in Judah. I mean, it sounds biblical too, so let's just say that. And and the lofty city, that could be any other city. in the Bible. But I want to go to what Jesus said about cities real quick. And it's a quick mention of cities that he gives. It's in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. And I think he's hearkening back to the book of Isaiah. I think he's hearkening back to the Old Testament because that's the Bible he read. And I think when he says these words, you are a city on a hill. You are a city on a hill. I think what he's saying is, this is a city that's already here. The strong city's already here. And who is it? It's the people that he described in chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's the people, you know, the Beatitudes, blessed are those. It's these new people of a new kingdom And their job, your job, if you follow Jesus, is to create this city on a hill. In other words, it is a city that is within the lofty city. Wherever there is a city, there are people who follow Jesus in that city. And their job is to create an alternative city. Their job is to create an alternative society. A different ordering of how things are done in the city. A different ordering of what it looks like to live together as people. Because really that's what just a city is. It's people figuring out how to live together. I think Jesus was building off of another passage. A passage in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a prophet. And he wrote uh, a letter after the folks in Israel were drug off to exile. The children of Israel had dis- have been disobedient to God. God had been for years saying, hey, if you're disobedient to me, I'm going to come in there and I'm going to get rowdy and things are going to get ugly and I'm going to drag you all off to Babylon. And sure enough, God was a man of his word. God was a God of his word and he did it. Now, the people had a dilemma. Because when when Babylon took people captive, when they took over nations, they had an assimilation program. It was probably one of the first great melting pots of the world. You know how America is a melting pot? Their plan was to make you assimilate into their culture. So they would come in, they would get rowdy, they would beat you up, they would burn your stuff, and then they would drag away the smartest and the brightest to Babylon. And instead of telling you, you're not going to believe this stuff anymore and quit talking Hebrew, we're sick of that nonsense, talk Babylonian, you know, they just made you live next to them. And they knew that in a couple generations, the cultural and religious distinctiveness of the other people would fade away. It would go away. All we got to do is have you live with us, give you some good jobs, give you some prosperity, give you guys a leg up, and you will quit speaking Hebrew. You will quit worshiping your God. You will look like us Babylonians. It was a brilliant plan, and it worked. And so Israel knows this, and they have a dilemma because they've been drug off to Babylon. And they start to they start to settle outside the city. They start to settle outside the city. They think, you know what? We want to remain Hebrew. We want to meet, remain faithful to God. That's what got us in trouble in the first place. Let's gather outside the city. Makes sense. Seem like the only two options were move inside the city and lose our distinctiveness, or settle outside of the city and remain distinct. Those seem to be the only options. In fact, there was a false prophet who wrote a letter to them. And he said, you guys are doing it right. Live on the banks of the canal. Don't go into the city. In two or three years, God's going to kill the Babylonians and he's going to ship you right back home. And everybody wanted to hear that message. That's what they wanted to hear. And that was a very popular letter that got handed around from person to person. And then Jeremiah, grumpy Jeremiah writes a letter. We're going to read part of his letter. In Jeremiah 29, he tells them this, verses 4 through 7. Now, whenever a Bible verse starts this way, look out. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't really like how that's translated because we lose part of it. I've always liked how Eugene Peterson renders the Lord of hosts, where he says, the Lord of the angel armies. Like when we call the president commander in chief, we're referring to him differently than when we just say the president. We're talking about the guy who can push the button. We're talking about the guy who can command the armies. When the prophets say, thus says the Lord, you know, the one that's in charge of the angel armies... Kind of adds a different flavor to that, doesn't it? Because you're like, oh yeah, he could come down here and mess everything up if he wants to. He could come and get rowdy. Thus says the Lord of the angel armies, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who sent them? God, you know, the Lord of the angel armies. welfare. What's God saying? He's saying, gang, you're going to be here a while. So build some homes, plant some gardens. In fact, those babies that you have now, they're going to be a marion age before you're out of here. You're going to have grandkids before you're out of here. Many of you will die here. That's what he's saying. So build some homes, move into the city. But then he basically tells them three things. Move into the city, increase, remain distinct, remain distinct, and then pray and work for the welfare of the city. Three things God tells the exiles to do. Move into the city, remain distinct, and pray and work for the welfare of the city. That's what they did. That's what the book of Daniel's about. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They served the king as teenagers. And they remained distinct. They remained Jewish. They remained faithful to their beliefs and their practices. That was what they were supposed to do. It's interesting because America is the great melting pot. And my family... Uh, I have strayed far from the roots of my family. Most of you probably have as well. The name winecoop, which I have anglicized, somebody along the way anglicized the name, is Dutch. And it's probably best pronounced vincoop. And it means a maker or seller of wine. I would rather have that job a lot of days. Those guys do pretty good for themselves. And they're the life of the party, wherever they go. The maker and seller of wine. And every single wine coop that you run into in America is a direct descendant of one vincoop. His name is Cornelius. And Cornelius vincoop was from Gelderland. And he spoke Dutch. He's from the Netherlands. Gelderland. And he moved here in the early 1600s. And he had many kids. He had many sons. And you can trace the wine coop genealogy through the Dutch Reformed Church of America and through the baptismal records. Now, just so you know, I'm not Dutch Reformed. I've never been to a Dutch Reformed church in my life. I don't know what Dutch Reformed is. Why? Because we assimilated. We quit speaking Dutch at some point. We quit being Dutch. The only thing we still have that's Dutch about us is we're cheap. It's the only thing. It's the only part of us that's still Dutch. My dad is a CP. Well, he's an accountant, you know. So that's the only Dutch part about us. You know that saying, "Let's go Dutch," right? That's me. We assimilated. And today you hear this in America regularly. You know, if they're going to move here, they need to speak English. If they're going to move here, they need to pay taxes. If they're going to move here, they got to do it this way. And that is the pressure of a dominant culture on assimilating people. And that's the exact same pressure that the Jews were under to assimilate into Babylon. And they chose not to. They resisted. Now, they had Bible reasons to resist. They had God's word that told them to resist. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't learn Babylonian, because you don't even know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's Hebrew names. None of you know their Hebrew names. All we know them as is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. They assimilated. They spoke Babylonian, but they also spoke Hebrew. They had Babylonian jobs in the Babylonian government, but they remained faithful to Yahweh. They remained obedient to Yahweh. This is God's game plan, I believe, for the church. The church is supposed to be a city on a hill. The church is supposed to create the strong city inside the lofty city. And the church is supposed to move into the city, participate in the life of the city, in the arts, in the culture, in the government, in the leadership, in all of the structures of the city. But it is to remain distinct. It is to remain faithful to Yahweh. It has remained faithful to its beliefs. It is to what I often say, to create a counterculture for the common good. Because that part hasn't changed either. We're supposed to work for the welfare of the city. Why? Because that's where the welfare of the church lies. Have you ever thought about it that way? Now, how do we do this? How, does, how do we as individual Christians, because this is where I'm going to start messing with all of us a little bit. How do we do this? Where do we get the ability to do this? To move into the city, to function and participate in the life of the city, and to remain distinct, and to work for the welfare of the city. How do we do that? What does this look like? And a great question to ask of all of ourselves at this point is, why are you here? Why are you here in Ray, Colorado? Why are you here in Yuma County? Now, some of you, the answer is, I just got stuck here, like my kids. That would be their answer. I'm just stuck here. Because as soon as I graduate, I'm out of here. It's our second or third largest export, children. They leave. When we say that the the, the children are the future of our church, No. The children we're growing up in this local church are probably not the future of this particular church. They're the future of somebody's church. The future of this church is kids that move back to this community. Some of them will have grown up here, but not all will have. You see, some are stuck here because they grew up here. But most of us, that we did a cost-benefit analysis as to life in Ray. And everybody does this wherever they live. They do a cost-benefit analysis as to where they live. And at some point, you answer the question, should we live in Ray based on this? Is it good for us? Will it be good for my wallet? Will it be a good place to raise my kids? Is it a safe environment? Is it comfortable? Are the people there like me? Now, we probably didn't do it that, you know, consciously. But I've had enough conversations with enough people to know that one of the driving factors in living in Ray is it ain't the city. It's comfortable here. I don't have to carry a gun here, though I do, but I don't have to. I don't feel threatened here. I feel comfortable That's a driving factor. And by the way, it's not just a driving factor for you all here and for me here in Ray. That's a driving factor for people living in Littleton. That's a driving factor for people living in Thornton. That's a driving factor for people living anywhere. They've decided at some level, except for those who are just stuck in extreme poverty, they've decided this is the best place to live and work and raise my family. What's the gospel question? What's the gospel question of why you're here? Is Jesus just about your safety and comfort and 401k and your wallet and your bank account? You see, which is worse news? To find out that you're broke tomorrow or to find out God doesn't exist tomorrow? Which is worse? What is it that the gospel asks? You see, the gospel says you're here to serve. That's the only way we can move into the city and remain distinct and work for its prosperity without us falling into the trap of the city, eating us alive, of being here just for us of being here for us and what it brings us. The only way to avoid that is to move into the city, whether it's Ray or Yuma or Denver, is to move in as a servant. It's the only way to avoid a selfish orientation to this world, to be a servant. Now, where on earth would we get the power for that? Because if you're like me, and many of you are, You're selfish to the core. This is about you. You do what you do because you do it because you like it. You want to have a good retirement. You want your kids to be safe. You want to live somewhere where it's comfortable. You want somewhere where most folks look like you. You want a church that functions the way you want it to. Most of us are just utterly pragmatic consumerism consumers to the core of our being how do we orient ourselves to be servants where does the power for that come from to do that i think in following an insight from tim keller we have to look at isaiah 25 the passage of scripture right before the one we read with this we'll close Isaiah gives us a picture of the final city. Isaiah gives us this picture of the final city that will be brought about. The final strong city. The city that the church is supposed to be trying to make now. The city that the kingdom of God is trying to bring to bear in the world. So Isaiah 25 verse 6. On this mountain. Now you're thinking, oh, we're outside all of a sudden. Jerusalem was on a mountain. And when you read about the mountain of the Lord, it's referring to the city of Jerusalem. Regularly is what's going on there. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts, remember the Lord of the angel armies, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. Vincope's going to be there. right? That's a God-given vocation. That might be my vocation in the new city to be a winemaker again. Because y'all ain't going to need preaching. But it sounds like we're going to need some wine. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts... It's in the Bible. If you're upset about that, just read. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. It's in there twice because it's super important. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Does that sound like a city worth living in? Does that sounds like a city. They didn't say anything about nine to five. You go to a job you hate, You're working for the weekends. This sounds like one big long weekend. Rich food, well-aged wine, no troubles, a God who wipes away tears. You know who wipes away tears? Moms wipe away tears, don't they? Dads just go, Suck it up, buttercup, you know? (laughs) What are you crying about? What's the problem? Nobody ever cries in this family. You know? But moms, they walk over, and moms, they get in your face, and they grab you, and they wipe your tears. This is not an abstraction. The writer could have said, And people won't cry anymore. God will make it really a nice place. He could have said it a number of ways. But the writer chose by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit said, print it, that's good Bible. They decided to say, God himself will wipe your tears. That's this town I want to live in. This is the picture of the final city. And how is this city created? It's created by God removing the veil, the covering, the shroud of death over the nations. And that's something he already did. We celebrated it earlier at communion. Jesus Christ removed the shroud. He swallowed up death in victory. So how do we move into the city and do this? You see, when you Christians move into the city, they don't try to take it back for God. When they move into a city, they live like Jesus lives. And how did Jesus live? He said, my life for yours. My rights for your rights. My life for your life. Jesus came and he served us. And you and I, When we move into the city, we move in to serve the city. My life for your life. I believe this is the only way God prospers a church. I believe this is the way that God prospers his people. Is when we live out the gospel as Jesus, serving the community we're in. So quick application. This coming Saturday we have second Saturdays, the motto, creating a counterculture for the common good. If you sense that this city is eating you alive and you are buying too much into the upper meta narrative of the culture that I'm here for myself and I'm here for my wallet and I'm here for my comfort and I'm here because, and if you need to escape that meta narrative and Lord knows we all do, And the reason I know that is because nobody is coming here to church saying, how come you guys are different? What makes this place different? Then go to Second Saturdays and serve. Is that asking a lot of you? It's asking you to be like Christ. So yeah, I guess that's asking a lot. But which narrative are we going to buy? That of the lofty city or that of the strong city? The lofty says, your life for mine, your comfort for my comfort. The strong city says, my life for yours. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to be this type of city. A city on a hill. A city that draws people to it. And, And even if they don't agree with us or believe in the gospel, we live it out in such a way that they go, man, I wish it was true. And then perhaps, as the Holy Spirit works in their lives, they come to believe it as true. May we be a signpost for the city of Ray. And Yuma County. A place where people come and ask, why do you live your lives the way you do? Why do you serve the way you serve? Why do you live like Jesus? We can say because of Jesus and what he's done for us. Holy Spirit, make it so. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May the Lord smile upon you and be gracious to you. Your life for theirs. Just like your master. Just like the Lord of the angel armies who chose death so you and I could have life. Amen.